Uh, okay, let's take a look at our scripture as we continue our series, which is called Close Encounters with the Christ. And uh, we're going to have a very interesting close encounter. Uh, normally, it's a person who is in need, and Jesus meets with them, and we talk about how this person interacts with Jesus, how Jesus interacts with them. Well, the close encounter that we're going to talk about is Jesus' interaction with Satan uh, as Jesus is tempted in the desert and what we can learn about the character of Christ. This is Matthew 3, 16 uh, through 4, 11. Now, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a, the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is God's word. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, if I could be anyone in the world, who would it be? It's a fascinating question. I know usually that question's asked more when you're 10 years old, but even at 50, I ask myself such a question. And I'm going to lay bare my soul and tell you who, if I could be anyone in the world, I would be. And here is the picture of him right now. That's correct. <laughs> Rafael Nadal. Oh yes, Rafa, as he's well known, I don't know if you know that Rafa won his 20th Grand Slam, tying him with Roger Federer, and since he uh, has a positive win-loss record with Roger, he is what is called the GOAT, which stands for the greatest of all time. Yes, Rafa goes up against the greatest uh, of players in the world, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, and beats them. He has the ability to do what I cannot. Now, I'd love to be Rafa, despite the fact that his bicep is about the size of my quadricep. <laughs> but if I was to get out there on the court and try to play like Rafa, I, I could not do it. I wish I could channel the spirit of Rafa Nadal into my play, uh, that I could play like Rafa. Why do I talk about Rafa and I talk about sports? Uh, I want to take it into the realm of the spiritual world that we have a spiritual opponent who is far stronger than us. Satan is his name, which means to accuse. And if you look at the long, sad, and sordid story of humanity, it is a story of continued defeat at the hands of Satan, who seems to win every time. It started with Adam and Eve being tricked and tempted and falling, and 
the world falling into temptation. We ourselves have come up against the evil one and experienced his overwhelming power and felt helpless in his clutches from time to time. Why is life so difficult, we may ask ourselves. It's because we often give in to temptation. Satan, who seems to know which buttons to push, which muscles to flex. But unlike a tennis match where you either win or you lose and you go home, the consequences of sin are far higher, are they not? The one who sins is the one who shall surely die. And Satan is the one that accuses us, that shows that we have fallen short of the glory of God. I don't know how many billions of people have walked the face of the earth, but all have fallen before Satan except for one. His name was Jesus Christ. And we witness here in this passage a close encounter, a, a, a face-off, if you will, between Jesus and Satan. And we see that Jesus Christ triumphs. Because Jesus, who is the representative of mankind, has triumphed over Satan through the cross and the empty tomb, he can give us victory as well. You see, Jesus triumphed when he was tempted so that we can pass the ultimate test as well. We see that there's a battle here, and there are three specific ways that Satan comes up against Jesus and tempts him, ways that we, can ex that we experience all the time. Number one, Jesus was tempted to not trust God for provision. Number two, Jesus was tempted to not trust God for protection. And finally, Jesus was tempted by Satan to not trust God for promotion. Jesus conquered over Satan in these three critical areas, and we can conquer over Satan as well through the power and the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus triumphed when he was tested so that we could triumph over our testing as well. Well, let's look at these three different temptations of Christ. The temptation, excuse me, the temptations of Satan to not trust God for provision. We see some background uh, in this passage. First of all, Jesus, before he enters his public ministry, before he goes into the desert, he goes through a baptism. And he says, I have to go through this to John the Baptist. And as he's being baptized and he comes out, the spirit descends on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven speaks out and says, This is my son, my beloved son, who I am well pleased with. What's going on here in this baptism? There's a commissioning that's happening as God is sending Jesus, the son, out to fight for his people, to be the champion of humanity. And he's communicating to the world and communicating to Jesus to not forget who you are. You are my beloved son, the one commissioned by me, as if Jesus would forget. But Jesus was a man as well, fully man and fully God. And Jesus, Jesus needed to hear this because it says the next line, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Isn't that interesting that Right after Jesus is told by God that you are my beloved son, that he's sent into the desert to be tempted by the devil. See, Jesus must be tested and tried. Before he ministers to the world, he must undergo a testing and he must pass it. A testing that every single other man and woman has failed. 
And it says in verse 2 that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, why did Jesus have to fast 40 days and 40 nights? It, it, uh, it harkens back to the Israelites in two different places. If you'll remember, the Israelites have been taken out of bondage. And Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commands and uh, commandments and also the instructions for the temple. And they're waiting 40 days for Moses to come down. And as they're waiting, they give in to the temptation to make other idols, the golden calf. And they were worshiping something else when Moses came down from the mountain. Additionally, there were 40 years of testing as they failed to enter the promised land because they failed to believe and follow the promises of God. And so Jesus must undergo this 40-day period of testing as well. So imagine if you didn't eat for 40 days, how you would feel. You would feel weak. You would be at your lowest. And that is when the tempter comes, does he not? When you're at your lowest. And verse 3 says, Call Satan the tempter. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Notice the first thing that Satan does. He strikes, tries to strike at Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God. If you are really who God said that you were. This is the way Satan works. It's the way he works with people. He tries to get us to doubt the promises of God. Remember Adam and Eve, where the tempter came to Eve and say, did God really say not to eat from this tree? He's trying to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son. In other words, Jesus, God doesn't care about you. You're not really the beloved Son. He's forsaken you. He's not going to provide for you. You're going to have to do it yourself. So command these stones to become bread. Now what's wrong with this, by the way? I mean, Jesus certainly has the power to do it. I mean, he took five loaves and he fed 5,000 men alone, probably 10,000 people out of five loaves. He has the ability to speak to a stone and for it to become bread. But it's wrong to do it. Because Jesus, he responds and he says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now what's Jesus saying here? Is he saying, look, I don't need food. All I need to do is hear God's word. No, he's quoting an Old Testament passage that actually was read by, uh, by Aaron Strickland earlier. That uh, you shall remember at Deuteronomy 8.2 where it says, uh, God is speaking through Moses. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you in these 40 days. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, what he's saying is, when Jesus is saying and quoting this passage, he says, is he saying, my father is going to provide for me. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. At the proper time, God will provide for me. The goal of the Israelites in the desert in those 40 years was that they would learn to trust the Lord for his provision, that they might believe his promises, but they did not. 
They yelled to Moses, send us back into bondage. Send us back to Egypt where we had food in our pots. In other words, we don't trust the Lord for his provision. We trust man instead. That's what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do. And the reality is all mankind has failed in this regard. We have this seed of temptation that Satan places in our hearts to doubt that God does not have my best interests at heart. I mean, Jesus might feel this as well. I mean, he was led by the Spirit, it says, into the desert and was instructed by God for 40 days not to eat. In other words, the Spirit of God has led me here. He's led me into this desert to die. But Jesus, by saying, I shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God, is saying, I will not live an independent life based on my own reason and my own rules. I will not live my life making decisions solely based on what I want, how I want, and what I think best. But rather, I will live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I choose to trust God and His promises and His plan. In other words, I will not let circumstances determine my faith, but rather I will let my faith determine my circumstances. I don't know if you're familiar with this optical phenomenon called a mirage. Mirage, the word comes from the uh, English via the French word, which means to look at or to wander. But a mirage is a naturally occurring optical phenomenon in which light rays bend via refraction to produce a displaced image of distant objects or the sky. So you know when you see, and you've seen it where uh, you're out in the desert and you see this pool of water, what's really going is that the, the, the mirage image appears below the real object. So the sky is refracted down onto the ground. And then with that heat haze where it looks like it shimmers, it looks like it's water. And it's been said that when people are, are uh, at the end of their rope and they don't have enough water, they see that mirage and they see this ocean just out of their reach. And they will walk toward that ocean. And of course, because of the refraction, it continues to go further and further back and they'll never, ever get there. See, this world and Satan gives us a mirage that we can be masters of our own destiny, that there's that temptation to trust in something or someone else other than God for our provision. All have failed, but Jesus did not. He trusted God and he prevailed over Satan with this temptation. And because he did, we can trust in Christ who leads us. Jesus is no mirage. He is the real thing. He is the risen Savior. I don't know if you're in the desert right now or not, but you see that mirage that the world gives to you to trust in, God, uh, to trust in anything other than God for your provision. We must look not to the mirage but to Christ. When we're tempted and when we're tried, we must say as Christ did, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Spirit of Christ, the champion, the one who won, 
is inside of us. And as we look to him, we too can triumph over this temptation to trust in anything other than God for our provision. Well, this brings me to my second point, the temptation, uh, the second temptation of Satan to not trust God for protection. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This word pinnacle can actually be translated in a couple of ways. It was probably not a point, but rather an area of the temple called Solomon's Porch, which overlooked the Kidron Valley, and it was about 300 feet high, so about the height of a football field over the valley. It was quite a view. The devil takes him there, and he says to him, For if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Notice again, Satan attacks his identity, if you are the Son of God. And then he actually goes on to quote Scripture. Satan knows Scripture very, very well. But he doesn't quote Scripture, he misquotes it. He takes it out of context. He actually takes it from Psalm 91.9, which says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague to come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This passage is referring to the protections of those who make the Lord their dwelling place and refuge, that God will watch over them and protect them. But the devil deliberately confuses this person in Psalm 91, stumbling and the Lord protecting them, and Jesus deliberately jumping off and expecting God to protect him. A decision that God has not blessed. See, by Jesus taking up Satan's request and making the unilateral decision to jump off without God's blessing, he's treating God as if God was there to serve Jesus instead of Jesus there to serve God. See, Satan is trying to get at this core temptation that every single one of us feel. Will God really protect you? Will he watch over you? Or will he forsake you? It would be so easy for Jesus to doubt, for there is Satan right in front of him when Jesus is at his weakest, tempting him in the desert. For Jesus to believe that God has led him into this situation and forsaken him. We can feel that way from time to time, can we not? When you look at your circumstances and everything seems bleak, everything seems dark, and you you can point your finger at God saying, you got me into this, God. Sometimes we got ourselves into it. But sometimes we're in a situation through no apparent reason of our own. God, you're not going to watch over me. And so instead of trusting God, what do we do? We take matters into our own hands. But Jesus refused to do that. Jesus said, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is from the Old Testament again, in which they put the Lord to the test. When they didn't have water, they grumbled against the Lord and they wanted to stone Moses, saying, 
uh, you, you've led us out into the desert to kill us with thirst. And later Moses chides the Israelites and commands them, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Massah was the place where they tested the Lord with water, crying out for water. Massah actually means testing. See, what Jesus is saying is that God has a path for me to walk. And it leads through this desert. And I'm going to trust him in it. He will protect me. It was interesting. I uh, had to get back here. The men's retreat was at Kiptapeak State Park, which is on the eastern shore. And there's only one way to get over to Kiptapeak, right? There's that 17-mile bridge, uh, you know, a wonder, man-made wonder of the world with three different tunnels and islands, and it's an it's amazing engineering feat. And as I was driving over from Kiptapeak this morning, I looked out on the Chesapeake Bay, and it, it looked like a sloshing bathtub. You ever seen it when it's like that and the waves are just like that? And you know that if you're out, you know, there's no boat to be seen anywhere aside from the big ones because you're going to get capsized uh, if you're out there. But there is a way, there is a path that leads over that 17 miles of roiling water from one shore to the other. And it's this Bay Bridge Tunnel. What Jesus is saying is that my God will make a path for me. And it's a narrow one, but it's based on his word and his promises. And I can go across that path, Satan. I don't need to tempt God by jumping off the side of that into the water. All I need to do is stay on the path. In the same way, Jesus, because he was victorious over the evil one, has given us a path to walk on. Remember Philip? Show us the way, Father, and that will be uh, Jesus, and that'll be enough for us. Oh, Philip, don't you know I am the way? I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus is the bridge that leads us over that temptation that we can walk across safe and sound. Jesus walked the path, and we must walk the path as well. See, much of our problem is we don't trust God and we wander off the side of that bridge into the water. And God is gracious even when we start sinking. If we call out to the Lord, he saves us. So when you don't trust God with your circumstances, look to him. Believe in him. Get back on the path that he has given you to walk. When you're tempted to not trust God with your finances, to wonder how is this going to work out, and to take matters in your own hands, trust God. He will provide and He will protect. When you're tempted to not trust God in your relationships with the opposite sex, you can trust that God has a path for you, a plan, which goes right through Jesus Christ and His Word. When you don't trust God to protect you, remember that Christ did. And even went to the cross, even went to the cross knowing that God would raise him up again. And surely he will do the same with us. We can trust God like Christ trusted God because he will protect and watch over us. 
Did Jesus say that not even a hair can fall from your head except for our, my heavenly Father willing it? Did Jesus not say that I have you in my hand and no one can snatch you from it? Does Romans not say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or danger or nakedness or sword? No, I am convinced in all things, Christ's love will never, ever fail. I don't know if you're in a tropical paradise right now or in the desert, but the message is the same. Trust in the Lord. He has the path for you. Stay in his word, and surely you will get from one end to the other. This brings me to my final point, the temptation to trust God with promotion. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What Satan was saying is, look, I will give you all of these people, all of this world, if you just do one thing, if you just worship me. Now you'll remember Jesus was to receive all the kingdoms of the world and has received them after the cross, after the crucifixion. But Satan is offering Jesus a king, all the kingdoms without the cross. No suffering, no rejection from his friends, from his family. Now, a side question, could Satan do that? The answer is not without the Father's blessing. It was a lie. It was a temptation because Satan is the father of lies. But Jesus, the God-man, must have felt that lure of absolute power. Can you imagine what that would feel like if the entire world was at your feet? If you could have anything you wanted when you wanted. But the cost, as Jesus worked the calculations in his mind, was this, that no one would be saved. That all of his people would be lost because there would be no cross, there would be no redemption, and ultimately there would be damnation of his soul. So Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, I will worship my Father and serve him, even if it leads to the cross, even if it leads to suffering, even if it leads to death, because that is the path that must be taken to redeem my people. Jesus is content in his role as the son of the father, the obedient son of the father. He doesn't need power. He doesn't need prestige because he has God. He wants to worship and serve the Lord only. Could we withstand this temptation if the world was laid at our feet? The answer is in ourselves, no, we couldn't. But he is in us and we are in him. We all crave power and prestige. But Jesus would not cave. He did not cave. And he is in us and we are in him. What is it that we truly want? Do we want all of the kingdoms of the world to be laid at our feet? Or do we want him? Because we can't have both. 
In Christ, we can make the right decision to be his, to serve and worship him only. Jesus frees us from the slavery of Satan. So what is it that you're chasing after right now? Is it promotion? Is it the adulation of someone or something? Is it the recognition of the world? If you are a Christian, you have the recognition of God himself. How great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of the living God. Three temptations. The temptation for provision, for protection, and promotion. Jesus passed all of them. And the rest is history. He has freed us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Jesus triumphed when He was tested so that we could triumph in our testing as well. The message I think that we should take away from this is that God has made us for victory through Jesus Christ. As I wanted to be Rapha, so we have a real champion, a spiritual champion who goes before us, who fights our battles for us, who is with us every step of the way. So let us live triumphal lives, not being buffeted about through the wind and the waves of the roiling sea, but rather on the path that is above the sea, walking firmly with direction from one shore to the next. Jesus was faithful from beginning to end. And in him, we will stay faithful from beginning to end as well. This is the promise of the gospel, the hope for everyone who calls on his name. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that you are our champion, the one who stood in our place and triumphed over the evil one when all else had failed. God, left to ourselves, we will surely fail. We will surely plunge into the sea. But you are the way, the truth, and the life. And you can keep us on the path that our lives would be marked by victory instead of defeat, by joy instead of sorrow and sadness. And so, Lord, wherever we are, whatever we're dealing with, would you strengthen us with your mighty power through your Holy Spirit that we might walk closely after you along the path of righteousness. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.